Welcome to Recovery in the Raw, where it gets real and raw, and where we get raw about real life. Um, with this being our first episode, we're just going to give a little backstory, um, tell you each, tell you a little bit of each of our stories and our purpose behind this podcast, um, and what our hopes are and what we want this to turn into. So, yeah, who wants to go? All right. Well, I guess I'll. Start us off here, team. Yay, uh, team. Teamwork uh, makes a dream work. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm Jade. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Uh, uh, I've got almost four years clean. And I guess a lot of the stuff for me uh, we've been talking about doing for the podcast is, you know, discussing things that don't get talked about a lot, like the real raw parts of life. Um, so, a little bit about me. I'm... Uh, married with two kids and one on the way. Uh, uh, I think I was using for probably about 10 to 12 years, somewhere in that range. Uh, ended up going to treatment, um, decided to go to treatment, found out I was pregnant, wanted to change my life and kind of get my life where it needed to be, where I always wanted it to be. So I just kind of took a leap of faith, went to treatment and you know, I've been doing a lot of the hard stuff for the last couple of years, and I think a lot of what goes into that is the things that are quiet and behind closed doors that doesn't really get a lot of the attention. Cam had talked a little bit about, um, sometimes I feel like when we're in recovery, we do a lot of comparing ourselves to other people's Instagram and Facebook highlight reels, um, and that's something that's really hard to not do. I think especially as a, a wife, a mom, a woman in general, you know, we always want to put on this facade of everything's beautiful and perfect in our lives. And I think the most important things that we can share and the strength that we have as women and wives and mothers and otherwise, especially people in recovery, is the fact that uh, life is messy and it is difficult and it is hard to navigate at times. <clears throat> um, there's a lot of things that I feel like we're going to be able to walk through during this series and um, discuss and and you know, talk about our experiences and hopefully have some people share their experiences along the way as well. Uh, but I think that's the most important thing is to be optimistic, keep an open mind, and nobody's perfect. And that's kind of what at least I want to talk about mm-hmm. on my end of things. <clears throat> so, And I think that's something that's been in my face now more than ever when I've been talking to people about things I struggle with. Is I'm fucking blown away that it's like people just like... Don't, they're surprised that I like I have issues. Like my life is a fucking mess. Like I'm a <laughs> right. mess sometimes. And right. there's been literally over the past three weeks, probably seven people that I've talked to that are like super floored that I can relate to whatever they're going through. Yeah. But I think that we do that with everybody because like I thought you had your shit together and I thought you had your shit together. Right. You know? And it's just it's that pedestal thing where right. I think we do. We start we we idolize these people unintentionally in our lives and then. And from different walks of life, different different ways and, and things that they've done in our lives to kind of impact us. And uh, we unintentionally have these. And it's not a bad thing to aspire to be anything. But I think it's also kind of humbling in a way to find out people that you kind of held on this pedestal. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just fucking people like us. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And I think, too, that, like, it's really important to, like, if we pop this little bubble of, you know, these facades that we build externally and put on other people then it's that much easier for easier for us to stop doing it internally too because that's something that I'm actually struggling with like right now today is like serious imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. yeah I'm I'm going through transitions in my life and um you know things are really getting good and like I can't help but think like you don't deserve any of this Mm -hmm. and like if these people only knew where you came from yeah they would all know that you're a fraud and blah 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 um, so, uh, I think that that's a little bit of what I'm excited about with this mm-hmm. is, you know, bringing recovery into the forefront and also just like for so long, I had no idea who or what I was. And like, I think that it's really time for me to lean into all of the things that I am that are positive. And one of the main things that is positive in my life is that. I'm a person in recovery. Mm-hmm. I've overcome so much. And the more I can lean into that, the more I can start, like, truly within myself believing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. 
It's funny though how that's the hardest thing to do is like authentically oh, who you are and just let it be. Like, there's yeah. so much that's attached to that. But like when you're talking about imposter syndrome, I feel that so much. Like I've done a lot and I've done a lot of like big things, but then every time I'm like, they shouldn't have picked you. Why'd they pick you? Right. Don't let right. them see. Don't mess uh-huh. up. They're going to know you're a fraud. Like trying to be whatever I think I'm supposed to be because if they see me, they're going to know that like, they fucked up. Like, it shouldn't have been me. You well, know? I think a lot of that, too, is, like, from being being an addict for so long and being in addiction and doing all these things, like, our whole lives are based around guilt and shame in some mm-hmm. capacity or another. Right. So, it's almost like these core beliefs that we have about ourselves, you know, we, we start to feel these certain things about ourselves in regards to our addiction. And for the first time in our lives, our addictions aren't necessarily a bad thing. They've become a major learning experience and a pathway for us to change our lives completely. Mm-hmm. And so, now we're having to flip this you know, this idea in our minds of, of course, we want there to be more acknowledgement and, and, um, you know, uh, when we're talking to people about our experiences and things like that and how to navigate things that we've already navigated in our recovery and whatever else, like now we're having to do these things in the same, um, light as other things that we always felt like we weren't good enough to do Mm -hmm. or whatever. And, you know, it's become the opposite side of the coin, which is really interesting if you think about you know, just a, a couple of years, what can change so much in our lives mm-hmm. from something that was so negative, so horrible, and that a lot of people don't ever figure out how to get out of. And now, like, without that basis, that's that one commonality that we all have. Without having that, I mean, we wouldn't really be able to talk about all these experiences and grow from this and find our way to the other side. Like, you're talking about this imposter thing. If, we're, mm-hmm. if we didn't have this commonality, we wouldn't be able to sit around and talk about it and find our way to the other side of that and grow from it and be our authentic selves like you're talking about. Or have any connection with one another. Right, right. right. Because Period. a lot of people, like, the the whole idea of recovery in general, I feel like sometimes is there's so many different people from so many different walks of life. Like, if it were any other average day, if you take addiction out of it, they wouldn't we'd never talk mesh. To each we'd other, never right? talk to each other. We'd you know, they'd just be strangers you pass on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd never have these intimate connections with. Which is so funny that you say because I feel like that's why I started doing drugs in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have to do the hard work of having like similar interests or hobbies mm-hmm. or doing oh, all right. the normal <laughs> things that you have to do in order to make friends, right? Right, right. I just like, hey, do you guys want to do some drugs? Right. Boom, you're in. You it's know, no matter what like, your life's like, we got the yes, drugs. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. It's like I don't care if you're an awful person. Like, do you have drugs? Right. right. <laughs> you know, and so, um, but you know, we I I took that avenue and I started doing drugs in order to like make friends and feel like I fit in, and mm-hmm. then like it snowballed into this thing where I was like, I don't want to talk to anyone and I trust no one and I don't know what's happening to my psyche and like, (laughs) you know, like being a mad woman, you know? And so it's crazy that the one thing that I started pursuing, but I did it in the wrong way. Right. It destroyed me. And the thing that saved me from this thing that destroyed me has given me exactly what I started pursuing. Like it's, Full circle. Right. Speaking yeah. of that connection. So, yeah. yeah. And I like that you mentioned that because I think that's something that people don't really think about, especially, you know, people that haven't used. is like all the reasons that we start using are like there's a thousand different things, you know. It all kind of like it can – for me, it was a lot. It was it was trauma. It was coping. It was an escape. It was to fit mm-hmm. in because I wasn't – I felt so fucking worthless and – unlovable and disgusting when I was a kid dude I, I was the kid that was like always getting in trouble and fighting because it was easier to have you afraid of me or mm-hmm. to be close to me mm-hmm. you know because then what would that look like you know you would leave or I would get hurt or whatever so that's where some of my using came from and when I used you know I took on this it's like it's my alter ego and she actually has a name okay <laughs> Cammy. like I don't go by that anymore because that's that girl and I was <sighs> I just got, you know, all the, I was the center of attention and whatever it was that I needed. Um, so that, you know, using gave me that, but it also like, like the perpetuating cycle of like getting certain needs met or whatever, but then it's like the guilt and the shame of using. And like at right. the end I cried while I was using because right. I didn't want to use, but I didn't know how to stop. Yeah. The hopelessness of it all. Right. Yeah. I remember that like desperation towards the end, like. Because it's not like we're absolutely oblivious to what it's done to our lives. Right. Because we have these moments of, of clarity in between where we're not high, right. where we're seeking the, the, the next high out. And it's like you, 
you come to this, it's like getting hit by a truck, Mm -hmm. you know, like you come to this realization of like, I'm living in my car or I'm living in this hotel. That was my circumstance. You know, I'm I'm absolutely homeless or desperate or destitute or whatever your situation is. And you have these moments of clarity and it's just like, it's so eye opening to like be in such a desperate place, but to be so sick and so hopeless and have no idea how to get yourself out of the situation that you've dug a hole so deep you can't even see the light at the top. Right. And you have no resources or... <laughs> right. Like, you've... You know nothing. Thrown yeah. it all away. You've burned every bridge, used everything you possibly had. Like, I wanted to quit using long before I ever did. Oh, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just, like, it's it's not even that you... Um, like, for me, at least, I could stop. I just couldn't stay stopped. Right. That was the problem, you know. hmm Yeah. Um, that's funny that you talk about this those moments I'll never the one that sticks out to me I guess maybe because it was one of the last ones but the one that sticks out to me is when um because I had been homeless for probably almost two years but then I had this moment where like me and a friend of mine had literally fallen asleep outside of a building on a sidewalk but simply because we were waiting for somebody to get home to get drugs. Um, and we fell asleep and I woke up to a woman in like really nice, like church clothes, like putting a bag of like cliff bars and like water bottles. And she gave me a $10 bill and I was like, Oh no, like I'm homeless, homeless. Mm -hmm. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. And then like all the things go through your mind and it's like, I remember being like a little girl and seeing people, like me and feeling so bad for them at the gas station and I'm that girl I'm like where'd that transition happen I'm and like I I I honestly like I was like how did I get here Mm -hmm. it does not make sense yeah like it's just like you and I mean I know for me like the first time that I tried to get clean um I got you know released from detox and I tried to get into a program it didn't work out Um, I made it across the street before I was doing what I knew how to do again and like literally blinked my eyes and it had been three months. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it's so crazy how it just consumes you. Like a hundred percent consumes your brain, your heart, your soul. Mm -hmm. Like, do you want to tell us how you got there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Who are you? I think we, <laughs> we mystery voice. <laughs> we we got off on a tangent. Sorry, it was good stuff. Um, my name's Casey, and I'm a person in long term recovery. I was highly considering going by Wanda, <laughs> but um, we're just gonna go for it. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean in, man. Um, so I my my sobriety date is October third of twenty seventeen. Um, I used, uh, the majority of my adolescence, you know, started dabbling at, you know, 13, 14, um, it kind of slowly progressed. Well, for me, it really slowly progressed. I always say that my first addiction was relationships, mm-hmm. um, because I, I always ended up with addicts. Even though all I did was, you know, smoke weed at the time. But even when I smoked weed, I still did it like... A lot. <laughs> uh, I still did it like an addict. Yeah. So, um, but... I Like I said, I was always with um, people who were heavy users, mm-hmm. narcotics. And I, you know, I had all these standards. Like, I would never... Mm-hmm. I would never, you it's know... It's funny, though, because we start with those, right? Yeah. It's like slowly, like the I will never is like... Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll never smoke crack. I'll never be a crackhead. And I'll never um, do heroin. Oh, right. my gosh. And I will never, ever use a needle. And right. I will... Mm-mm. No, yeah, we crossed... All those bridges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, drug addicts, but we're not drug addicts. Right. Yeah, like I, re- I remember distinctly, like back in the day when I was like smoking my like seventeenth millionth bowl of the day of weed, and we would be watching Intervention, yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, "Oh man, like I know I, I know I get messed up, but at least I'm not like that." Right. Yeah. Well, that came full circle too. Um. <laughs> um 
But yeah, uh, some of some of the key points of my trauma is um, I was raised by a. Um, Still to this day, if you were to ask my father if he was an alcoholic, he'd tell you no. Um, if you ask anybody else, they'd say otherwise. Um, and my mom was, even prior to me being born and all throughout my life, was severely mentally ill. Um, she started attempting suicide when that I know of um, when I was 13. And... Uh, about five or six different times I was the one to find her, 10, 13, or the whole thing. Um, and then she finally completed suicide when I was 18. Um, and that's when things really started snowballing for me. Um, yeah, I used anything and everything pretty much very quickly after that. Um, then I was finally introduced to the needle, and it was game over from there. Um, homeless, uh, not a dollar to my name, no possessions, no nothing. Um, and I was actually introduced to recovery by a narcotics officer who kept bumping into me, <laughs> if you will. That's a nice way to say that. Yeah. Uh, kept bumping into me and finally said, uh, have you ever thought about getting help? And I was like, what do you, like, I don't have an ID. I don't have a dollar. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> like, I don't have a phone. What do you mean? Like, right. and um, he gave me a chance. He told me to meet him the next day and he he, but I will say that he even said that, like, it took him and all of the members of his team, plus, like, 10 other people to find me someplace. And he was like, if it was this hard for us as right. officers, I can only imagine how hard it That's is part of what the for just a regular is. person. Like, the resources aren't out there, and mm -hmm. what is out there isn't known. So, like, how are people supposed to get help when we're not giving them some support that they actually need? Yeah, and there's all these like, loopholes that, right. like, you've got to know how to work the system in order right. to make the system work for you. And that's the only way to to be able to get into the facilities and, and the things it's that you It's not easy, dude. It's not at all. Oh, yeah. And I then have of to course, manipulate you know, my way through it. For right. Sure. And then, you know, we're... Trying to get away from 12 that. hours clean, you know, like, <laughs> maybe a day tops, and we're, like, trying to do the right thing, but, I mean... Again, it's just like anything else. Like, if you're trying to do something for so long and you're not having any success with it, which you're just when stop. you're homeless and right. addicted to drugs and all the other things, 12 hours is a lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people don't realize that because, I mean, that's that's one whole half of the day or it could be the entire part of daylight for the day. Right. And then you're having to seek shelter and you're trying to do all these right. other things and try to make a plan and... You've used all of your resources to try to get into treatment, which you right. can't get in the same day anyway, so then what? Right. Then what do you do? Like, yeah. And then there's, like, loopholes to getting into treatment. Like, you got to have two days clean or three right. days clean or a week or whatever it is to be able to get in the door. Like, you can't ask somebody that's that's been out for a long time right. and expect for them to be able to hold their shit together enough to, to get, get into in. treatment, right. you know? Like, P.S., I'm homeless. Yeah. Like, I don't have a phone. Right. I don't Nothing. have a any number for you to text me at. Right. I don't have any way for you to be like, okay, let me let you know when we have a bed. Right. What, what do you How mean you, you don't have right. a bed? I'll stay right here in your lobby. <laughs> like, yeah. let, like I, can, I will die if I leave this room. Mm -hmm. That's what you don't understand. And that's, that's exactly what I did when, um, when he took me to the, to the detox center i super advocate for going to like crisis centers first and using those as like jump off points or if you have to go to the emergency room sometimes they will then refer you to a crisis center um but because that's what i did and that's what worked for me it took me twice to because the first time i had no idea what i was doing right and i let them discharge me mm -hmm. to just uh, a homeless shelter right. with no id mm -hmm. so of course like i literally made it across the street before like some homeless people I was like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> like, let's do something, yeah. you know? And uh, like I said, you blink your eye and it's been three mm -hmm. months. But the first dead end that I wrote, like he had planted the seed, you right. know? And I knew that it was possible and I knew that there was somewhere for me to go. Um, so the first dead end that I ran into, I went back to the same detox center. Mm -hmm. I, they, they were full. I said, I'll stay right here. 
because I'm going to die out there. And I know these key words that if you use by law, they have to like, I said, I will kill myself and I'm drunk. Right. I purposely drank um, because I knew that by law. That's they, the only way you know that you'll be able to mm-hmm. stay. Like they, they have, they have to do that by right. law. Um, and I sat there for th- two hours in their itty bitty little one chair lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I know that they're, I know that discharge is coming up at 1030. So I know that there's going to be something. And so I sat there and that time I would not let them discharge me until I got to a mm-hmm. facility. And so I went to treatment. Um, I did a six months treatment. Um, and then from there, like, my life is completely 1,000% changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a mom. Um, my daughter's never seen either one of her parents high. Um, and, you know, God willing, she never will. And, um, you know, we're, we're homeowners. I... I have a car outside and you know like it's just it's crazy and like I said um I'm excited about bringing anything that brings recovery to the forefront and lets people know that like whatever you think is stopping you from getting there like if you're the type of person like I was like, oh no, people, people like me don't go to rehab mm-hmm, and right. people, people like me, like, I don't have any money. I don't have any family. I don't right, have any, right. you know, like that you can. And, um, yeah. So that's what I'm excited about. What about you, Cameron? I'm Cameron. I'm a personal long-term recovery. And what that means is I haven't used any substances since December 7th of 2015. Um, my childhood was kind of like Casey's. Um, so it's pretty normal. My parents divorced when I was eight and my mom went downhill from there. Um, she did have a miscarriage. Um, little, little foot, like forward. I want to say that I do have my mom's permission to share these stories because my story isn't just my story. It's my story, my mom and my brother's story. Um, and she is clean today. So, we're all good. Um, nice. But it was rough. Um, once my mom had the miscarriage, she got super depressed. Um, so I, she was, had her daycare. So pretty early on, I was, like, taking care of all the kids. Um, did a lot of the raising of myself and my two brothers. Um, my mom met, we moved with my grandparents, and my mom met this guy that was, my stepdad, her ex-husband, and it was rough. Um, they both struggled with addiction. My mom struggled with her mental health, um, bipolar and depression. So we grew up with a lot of domestic violence and a lot of going without, you know, food or water or power or, um, you know, watching them fight and knowing that, like, I legit had a fear, you know, that if I left, my mom would die. Either he would kill her or she would kill herself because um, mm. there was a lot of that. Um, and just we went from place to place a lot. We got evicted a lot. Like one of my memories, I was in middle school and I came home off the bus and all of our shit's in the yard, you know. So, Yikes. like, it's, you know, so I became, in school, I was the angry kid that was fighting. I was suspended in ISS, OSS, expelled, um you know, whatever, but I was, I started smoking weed when I was 13. I had my first drink at like 12. I was smoking cigarettes at 10. I started using meth pretty regularly at 14. So I was in a lot of trouble, like, but no fucking buddy asked me what's going on. Mm. They put me in ISS. They put me in OSS. They send the resource officers after me, you know, they, whatever, right. but nobody said, Hey, what's going oh, on? Right. You know, what is so wrong that you're, you know, this 14 year old child is acting like this. Like no counselors or nothing? No. That's nothing. wild. Uh-uh. There was never nothing. You know, I was always, I was the troubled kid. Like there wasn't, me and my brother both, there wasn't any kind of support or help though. Um, at the same time though, I wouldn't say anything. I probably would never told because I was right. my mom's protector. You yeah. know, I couldn't leave. Um, 
<clears throat> I couldn't leave her because, you know, I was worried about what would happen. Um, but my dad finally got custody of us, but at that time I was 17 years old. You know, I had learned very on how to survive um, with what I was doing, you know, being promiscuous. Um, that's how I got a lot of my needs met and using because I felt so abandoned and worthless. Because um, even things like, my, you know, when my dad left, I know it wasn't intentional, but I felt like he left me, you right. know. Um, and then my mom, with her stuff, you know, and I understand what it's like to be addicted and codependent now, but as a child, it felt like I yeah. didn't matter to her, you know. Um, and those are all the things that I swore I would never do. I would never be like my mom. I would never do that to my kid. Um, and me and my mom started using together. Um, like I said, when I turned 17, I took off to Tennessee with my daughter's I don't even want to call him a sperm donor, whatever he is. Um, and I wanted to get away. Um, I really had intentions of like starting over and getting my shit together. Um, and me and my younger brother were 15 months apart. We were always super close and it was hard for me to leave, um, because he felt like I left him Mm. and I took care of him pretty much our whole life. Um, so that was hard. But I tried to get my shit together up there. It got worse. I actually started making it up there. So it just kind of backfired on me. Um, and then things between him and I didn't go very well. Um, There's a lot of domestic violence in using because I was just doing what I was shown. You know, I didn't know how to be yeah. in a healthy relationship or how to fucking live, you know, without right. using. And I think that's part of why it was so hard for me to get clean because that's all I had. Like, right. I'm about to lose everything. As fucked up as it is, like, that's what I have. Um, So that was hard. But... Things between us got pretty bad. I got pregnant with Elena when I was 19. Um, I had her when I was 20. I quit using while I was pregnant and breastfeeding, but after that it was like right back at it. Um, That's crazy. And I convinced myself for a very long time. Her for The first four years of her life, I was in active addiction. And I always said I was a good mom, you know, because I had custody of my kid. I'm not like those other girls. I'm a good mom. Right. I have my kid. You know, she's got a roof over her head. Like, never mind the fact that it's every fucking trap house in the county. And I really don't know. Like, thinking back, there are times that I don't know where she was or if she ate. Like, I fucking have no idea, you know. Um, And that's really what lose. I'll get to that. But I lost her and that ended up saving me. But things between her, dad, and I did not go well. Um, He tried to leave me in Tennessee. Um, I made it back to Georgia, and it just continued on. Um, I would just keep finding, you know, these shitty relationships. And it was like, people talk about your low. And I hear people all the time, like, when are they going to, you know, when's it going to be bad enough for them? When are they going to, like, sometimes it doesn't fucking happen. Because for me, it's like the frog that you put in hot water. You put him in hot water, he'll jump out. You Mm -hmm. put him in, you heat it up, and he'll die. It was like I slowly adjusted to each new low. Yep. 100%. You know, uh, okay, I'm homeless, all right, you know, or like I don't, I can't stay at my dad's because my dad did not able my, enable my shit, you know, he'd make me leave, cut my phone off, whatever, so then I'd go find somewhere to stay, and then like I would just, it was just one thing after another to where like, and I, I knew how to survive because I grew up that way. Right. You know, if I got to go get water from the gas station and heat it on a fire and take a shower, that's what I do. Like, right. you know, I knew how to do that. Um. And I think that's part of why it felt so normal to me, mm. unfortunately, is yeah, because yeah. that's just what it was. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't seem odd to me. Yeah. Um, I did know inside I didn't feel normal. Like, when I lived at my dad's when I was 17, I remember telling my brother, like, I don't belong here. You mm-hmm. know, you guys get up with an alarm and you guys go to work and you do these things. Like, I can't do that. Um, I craved that, but I didn't feel like I could be that. You know, I felt so out of place. Um But I just continued on, um, and in 2015, July of 2015, yeah, July of 2015, I went to jail, um, and my daughter was placed with my aunt on a, um, a safety plan, um, you know, at this point, I had drug her through four years of shit, you know, just the things that she had to watch, you know, I I was doing the same thing to her that was done to me, all the shit I said I would never fucking do, I was doing, um, and it's not that I didn't love my kid. You know, I loved her more than anything, but I was sick, you know. And that's the other thing family doesn't understand when they're like, Did you, do you not love your kid? You're choosing drugs. That, that's not that's the fucking way it works. works. Like, right. 
I'm fucking sick and I need drugs to breathe. And I don't think people, if people understood the science of addiction, I think that would help end a lot of the stigma. That's yeah. such a good way to put it too. Right. Like you need drugs to breathe. Right. There's like, no better way to explain it than that. I've never heard it put like that, but right. it's, it's so accurate. Like I can't survive without it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did lose her in July of 2015. She went with my aunt on a safety plan. Um, cause it was like 10 o'clock at night and I was going to jail. Um, me and my partner were actually both going to jail. So they said she was about to go to foster care. So I told her to get on the little fucking radio. And my uncle worked at Douglas County and they would come get her. So she went there and I was supposed to get her back. So I tried to stay clean um, for two weeks. I did okay sometimes, um, but it didn't last. Um, and then um, a few weeks later, I had to call my aunt until I was going back to jail in August. And that time I ended up having to stay for 30 days on a fucking dog ticket. But I feel like that was God working in my life because I... On a dog ticket? Right. How ironic. Yeah. 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 I had to stay That's there. wild. Um, but I feel like that's what I needed. Yeah. Um, to get my head clear enough. Yeah, um, to sit down for a minute. Right. But even then, you know, I was in jail. It's like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do right. I'm going to get her back. But, like, the minute I got out, what, where, where am I going to go? Yeah. Where am I going to fucking go? So mm-hmm. as much as I wanted to do right... The only thing I knew how to do was to uh-huh. go back. Another hole in the system. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did that, and I tried. I tried to do outpatient. It didn't work. Um, you know, I would leave there and go get high. I tried to just go to meetings. I would go to meetings high. Um, it. I tried. <laughs> I literally tried to find any loophole that I could just mm-hmm. to get her back without having to stop using. Yep. You know, because I was like, well, defects didn't call me within 72 hours, so they can't actually take her. And, you know, that fucking worked. <laughs> When I first started going to meetings, I was like, I'm going to learn how to use, like, a normal person. Right, right. (laughs) What a wild thing to think about, too. Like, there's people that can get high just on the weekend. Right. I'm going to be like that. There's normal people that smoke meth the normal way. Right. Like, nobody casually smokes (laughs) meth. That's not a fucking thing. You you don't smoke meth with your slice of pizza. You know what I'm saying? I only shoot heroin on Friday. Right. Right. But those are things, too, that I tried to do to stop, right? Like, only using certain hours or a certain amount or whatever um yeah that's some of the stuff in the fellowship right the ways we try to control yeah. it mm-hmm. and then i went into a program i was supposed to be there friday um before five because they closed at five i got there friday night at like 10 p.m um because as much as i wanted to go to treatment i was scared i was terrified mm-hmm. um there's a lot more that goes into it that people just don't get like for me, it was really hard and scary, and I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so I went that night at, like, 10 p.m., and I show up, and the house manager's like, are you high? I was like, no, I'm not fucking high. I was twice <laughs> out of my mind because I used up until the second I walked in the door. Oh, yeah, for sure. But they let me stay the weekend because there wasn't any staff there. Um, and then Monday they came in, they let me go through group, and then after group they had a meeting with me, and they are like, well, why weren't you here on time? I said, well, I was fucking scared. And she was like, mm, bullshit, you can go. I was like, okay, so I was high before I left the parking lot, you know? Yeah. Like, what do you, what do you, like, you're talking about, like, what the fuck, what do you think I'm going to do? Like, you think I'm going to come in here skipping and, like, fucking ready to go? Like, it's not right. the way that works, dude. I've got a lifetime of fucking shit. Ten years. Mm-hmm. Ten years of shit, you know? I've used consistently for fucking ten years, and you just want me to, like. And that's what they don't talk about. They don't talk about. They, right. Er, the, the, the idea, the spotlight is placed on the drugs. Right. But the reality is, the spotlight is all the other things that make you pick up the drugs. Right. There was so much more that And you don't learn that, that until you spend time in treatment and in outside resources and with right. therapy and all mm-hmm. these things. You know, you don't, that, that doesn't get illuminated in your life and it, it especially doesn't even click right. when somebody points that out to you. At least it didn't for me for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I thought I decided to quit using drugs. Right. I didn't need, I, like, when I got into treatment, it was so much more than that. It was my trauma and my codependency yep. and my anger management and my parenting and, like, mm-hmm. life, like, fucking everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I did when cool values, I was supposed so. to be developing and my brain was supposed to be developing, like it had already stopped, you know, right. because mm-hmm. the trauma and the substance use, like, mm-hmm. I that was it. There was no, you know, I didn't learn how to do the things I was like emotional intelligence or like any of that shit, like, wasn't there, you know. Yeah. Um, but I went on for like six more months and then I finally got into a treatment center in December and I did six months of residential and then six months of aftercare, which is like outpatient. And right. it fucking changed my life. But I took advantage of that six months, you know, because I knew the first two days I cried because I was scared. Um, but I knew I had to do something different 
So I like soaked every fucking thing in, um, and it totally changed my life because it wasn't just the drugs, right? right. It was so much more that All I had to learn and learn like how to navigate and how to be a successful fucking human, you know, because mm-hmm. I had been surviving my entire life and yeah. operating out of chaos. You know, I didn't know how to function in the real world and in healthy relationships. Um, but I, I got out of treatment and I started working there and. I went on to get my CARES and my CAC and work on the Georgia Recovers campaign and, like, do all of these great big things, you know. But I still have all that shit where I just feel like that fucking 13-year-old broken little girl who's insecure and worthless. Yeah. You know, that still shows up in my life every single day. And um, I think, you know, that's part of the reason why I want to do this so much because, I'm, you know, a new chapter of my story, like you guys know, in January... um, I lost my brother. Um, and he was trying to commit suicide and I lost him to an officer-involved shooting. And I think part of that is the shit that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mental health and PTSD and depression and, yeah. you know, fucking comparing ourselves to everything. You know, I, like how many more people are we going to lose before we start making some changes? Yeah. yeah. You know, and I'm not willing to just continue... To sit by and watch it. Like, if one fucking person listens to this podcast and it does something for them, then great. You know, that's our purpose. It It was Um, worth it. So that's my reason um, behind this is to, you know, talk about the good things and and the challenges and all of the fucking mess in between that makes us. Because it's not a linear thing, you know. And recovery changes, whether it's recovery from substance abuse or mental health or eating disorders or codependency. Like, it's all the same and none of it's, like, perfect all the time. There's ups and downs, and there's going to be times that you feel like you cannot fucking make it. Like, you're yeah. not going to survive another fucking second, and everything's about to fall apart. And then you just keep moving. And then before yeah. you know it, you're on the other side of it, you know? And then you get to go back and talk to somebody who's in the same position and be like, I know a way out, you know? Right. So that's really part of why I want to do this. Yeah. Um, uh, you were talking about a lot of things, like, in regards to childhood and stuff like that. I didn't really touch on that too much I'll- Say a couple of things, and then I'll, uh, I'll wrap up on my end of things. But um, both my birth parents were IV drug users, and um, I didn't really know about all of this stuff really in the beginning. Um, there was a lot of trauma and physical violence mm-hmm. and a lot of things like that from a really early age. Um, and then uh, they ended up losing custody of me, and my maternal grandmother got custody of me, and we went through the whole process. They legally adopted me and all that. So, you know, like you guys both were kind of talking about, there was like a fairly good piece of life. Like it seemed normal. It seemed like I did the good things and I did all these good things. You know, like um, having a social life and, and going to school and doing all these things. And then somewhere along the way, it was almost like as if my, my brain and my body knew that something was wrong mm-hmm. before I knew that something was mm-hmm. wrong on a cognitive level. Because I was doing addictive behaviors, like, as early as, like, six, seven mm-hmm. years old. And then they really, when I went through, started to go through puberty, they really started showing up. So, like, self-harm and bulimia yeah. and um, promiscuity when I started getting a little bit older and things like that. Because there was always this void that I had. Mm-hmm. And even though the drugs weren't quite involved at that point, all the things that we were just talking mm-hmm. about, I, I was I was coping with what I knew at the time. Like, I had not been introduced to the drugs yet because I feel like, for me at least... That was the strongest band-aid I ever had. Okay. Um, but once once all that kind of started going on, um, my parents kind of had a rocky relationship uh, after I turned, like, 12-ish. They ended up having a lot of, like, marital stuff go on. Uh, they ended up staying together until I was uh, in my early 20s. But they wanted to stay together to keep the family whole, you mm-hmm. know. And it's like... Um, People don't realize how much damage that can right, do. Right, right. And, you know, it's, you guys were talking about your own situations, like, is with your parents and stuff. And it's like, I learned a lot of those behaviors about how to deal with the things and the pain in my life and the emotions and stuff like that by avoidance mm-hmm. or just acting like they didn't exist at all. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, you were talking about your brain developing to a certain point. Like, when you were... It stopped developing at whatever age because, you know, you started doing the drugs and stuff... It was very similar for me because all that trauma, mm-hmm. um, I said, I've since learned in therapy, it reactivated everything from 
infancy mm-hmm. that I didn't know about, about abandonment issues and all these other things well, that I had going on. Because the body keeps the score. That's right. an amazing oh, book to read, by the way. <laughs> 100%. Trauma is stored book. in your nervous system, right. your Everywhere. muscles, your bones. Like. Right. And trauma reactions happen without you even realizing uh-huh. like, what right. is going on. So that all was And I'm still... sure you were, like, no wonder you found drugs. Because, yeah, like, so, if, yeah. you're, if you're whole thing is avoidance and pretending like emotions don't exist well boom right. Right. Drugs are <laughs> that's what it does so, drugs are the answer right. so my dad my dad uh it's not biologically my father no no uh genetic connection at all but it's just so wild how um i i tell a lot of people this like addict brings in general work the same way mm-hmm. and because i have the same type of lineage as he has mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if we're specifically related the same things kind of cropped up for uh-huh. me so mm-hmm. He was an alcoholic. He got into recovery whenever they adopted me as, as a small child. He started drinking again at twelve and third, and when I was when I was around twelve or thirteen, um, and that's when the marital issues were happening with my family, and then so I started seeing all this, mm-hmm. and so like you were talking about like saving your mom or whatever. Like I'm trying to save my dad. I'm taking the beer and the crown and I'm pouring right. it down the drain and it's turning into this whole thing and it's making the situations worse. Right. So, so now you've like, got more trauma because you're the parentified child. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, well this isn't working. So let me just start drinking a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's uh, he's in some, uh, not like recovery fellowship specifically, but uh, like Triners and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So, um, which is a big part of their socialization, I guess you could say, is they do a lot of like open bar events and right. oh, yeah. very a lot of drinking. Yeah. So we would go to these festivals and these Triners weekends and these whole weeks where we'd go do all these things. And it was nothing to see the kids in and out of the liquor room. Like, they would rent an entire hotel room just for the bar. And, you know, so that's kind of like where it started when I was early, you know, 13, 14, 15. And um, I had issues with, like, um, some neurodivergent issues like ADHD and things of that nature. So they started being on prescriptions, and I was taking that and um, ended up selling those because I didn't want to take them because they didn't make me feel normal. And um, anyways, fast forward kind of through all that stuff. Um... I was having a lot of identity issues um, later on mm-hmm. and trying to replace these feelings of trauma and stuff that I didn't realize I had with bad relationships again, yada, yada, yada. And that just kind of spiraled all the way through my 20s. And once I kind of get to 18, 19, I started smoking weed and doing benzos and all these mm-hmm. different things. And then once I figured out, oh, there is a way to check out of this pain, it was a wrap. It didn't matter what you had. Um, pretty much my drug of choice was benzos any type of downers for probably eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. And then out of pure necessity, because I couldn't afford anything else, um, meth became available in a bad relationship I was in. And um, so it was just time and place. Right. And the only upper I ever really liked was cocaine. And then I was like, well, this is similar, right? No. And then I was like, <laughs> absolutely not similar. Right. Totally not the same thing. And now I can just lose total weeks of my life. Right. And I think that was... I never really liked the high because I was more of a downer myself, but I think it was the ability to check out a life mm-hmm. for such long periods of time with the right. meth. And that's what I think people don't get is because, like, my drug of choice was meth. Like, that was my favorite. But whatever you put in front of my face, whether it was G it. or alcohol or pills or Coke or weed, I don't care. Like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I'm going to do it till yeah. like, the Until, like, it's not there right. anymore. Yeah, right. I do so no, I got out of no was not a word yeah. in my vocabulary, right. and really, you know, I hear that a lot of addicts describe themselves as this way, but it's really, really true. Truly, and a hundred percent, I was addicted to more. Right. That's no matter what. true. Yeah. Just, and that's what oh, some of my family didn't understand when I got out of treatment. Is like when I say I can never drink a beer, like I mean I can never drink a beer because that beer is going to turn into two, and then a gallon of vodka, and then I'm probably going to go get an eight ball and like. Really right. fuck my life up. Right. Right. Like, you know, me, Jade and I make, make jokes all the time, like, and <laughs> we kind of have to, like, check ourselves because, you know, we're, we're addicts and we have, like, that dark humor. Right. <laughs> like, and like, it's, like, your audience kind of right. like, normal, it's a normal thing to share in a meeting, but, like, like, <laughs> you drink to have fun, I drink till I'm homeless. Right, right, and, right. Like, that hits real well in the rooms, right, but right. when you're saying it at work, it's <laughs> they don't really, get it. they're like, yeah, no, I um, hate cocaine, but I sure do love the smell of it, you right. know, like, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. right, yeah. but it's, it's true, right. it is. <laughs> I will drink until I am homeless. homeless, right, and I think that's such a foreign concept for people that just 
genetically don't have this issue with their right. brain. Like, you know, my husband, he's he doesn't really have any addiction issues, never has. He can drink half of a beer once or twice a month and it's fine right and he just leaves the rest of it on the table and it's so baffling to me that somebody can do that in such a normal capacity and like i i think that's part of it for me as far as like this perpetuating cycle of guilt and shame is because even with significant significant time in recovery you know i've got three years three and a half years or so in i still have these moments and they're fleeting thoughts you know i've learned how to cope over time but it's like I'll be at a social event mm-hmm. where people are having champagne or having a beer at a wedding or right. um, going out to, you know, to celebrate some sort of uh, special occasion. Mm-hmm. And we go to a restaurant and everyone just has a glass of wine. Right. And my brain says to myself, like, oh, well, I could have a glass of wine. Right. And I have to immediately shut that thought down because, you know, my husband and I were talking about that the other day. He's like, do you ever think that you'll get to a place where you can? And it's not that... I feel as though I couldn't be recovered enough to do that whatever falsetto, this false sense that I have in my head of whatever. It's just a matter of I'm not willing to take the risk. Right. Because the risk for me is so much more dangerous. Like, right. It's not that I don't think that I could do it. It's the fact that I'm too scared to even try to do right, it. Right, the same. Right. And I, and I hear, like, newcomers 30 days in, 60 days in, a month in, and I hear them, and that's part of the other reason why I want to talk about this stuff is they get frustrated because they're like, a lot of the women I've sponsored to talk to, they'll be like, well, I'm still having using dreams or I'm still having thoughts. Like, me too, and I'm working on seven years. And sometimes right. I'm like, man, that'd really be fun to, like, get on one for a little bit. Like, yeah. hold on, let's reel it back in or let's play the trade through. Like, mm-hmm. it might be fun for a second, you know, or like when I'm out somewhere, you know, I would like to have a beer or a drink. Right. And then I'm like, okay, well, what are, what chance am I taking? You right. know, what, what might happen then? Because I know, mm-hmm. you know, I know my personality and I know where that's probably going to go. The whole thing is just so dangerous. Like, and that's what I feel like nobody really talks about is, um, like, you have this, it seems to me, at least, especially in the rooms and things of that nature, in the, the fellowship programs, it's, you have this all or nothing type of mentality mm-hmm. where it's like, you you can do things and it's okay as long as you're doing it correctly. And, you know, like, there's a lot of stigmas behind, like, Matt, for example, right. or or, um, you know, just smoking weed because like, I was a meth addict, so it's not, yeah, whatever. Cal- harm reduction, yeah. right. California sober. Right, right. Or, I think that's know. some of the stuff, you know, we all said we want to talk about on this podcast, too, because yeah. there's so much shame and stigma around, like, recovery doesn't look the same for everybody. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, it just you know, it's all or nothing. It's like, and then you have the old timers, they're like... If you you're even die. yeah, if you even <laughs> smell a beer cooler, you're gonna die. You right. know, like it's... and that was I always heard. You know, like a grateful addict will never use. And then I was like, "Fuck," because like I, I, dude, I go through days where like I'm not grateful. And yeah, like, I'm me too. Dude. And I'm unhappy. And, and that's I'm when whatever. the thoughts start. When I get like overwhelmed and right. stuff, like <laughs> literally the the last one that I had, um, my dad was going through a health crisis and like. Everything was falling. I was having to sell his house and move him and do all this stuff. And I was like, man, things were a lot easier when all I had to do was worry right. about mm-hmm. getting high. Yeah. Right. And, like, of course that's not true. Like, if I play the tape that's all the way through. That's just the thoughts through, in our brains. But, like, like I, guess, I guess it's the same way as, like, when, you know, a normal person remembers uh, a bad time in their life. They, they can... The body only wants to remember, like, the like as a right. way the, the brain protects itself. It yeah. only wants to remember the good stuff and yes. romanticize the good stuff. And, mm-hmm. like, that's just a normal thing. But, mm-hmm. fortunately, I was blessed enough to go to treatment and right. learn how to, like, play the tape all the way through. Because when I do that, like, no, it was not easier when right. you were only having to worry about right. getting high. Because what you're forgetting is that all you had was getting high. Right. And, like, you were really cold and you had no clothes and everybody stole everything from you. And you were out mm-hmm. of your mind thinking that, you know, the CIA was after right. you. So. Right. Which is so wild if you think about, like, <laughs> I remember being towards the end and, like, being, being in just this d- delusional state of, mm-hmm. like, like you're talking about, paranoia. Like, my life was the same every day. But in different places. Right. Like, I, the only thing that I had in common was the drugs, the person I was getting high with, and my car. Mm-hmm. And, like, every day I would get up from wherever we were and I would drive to a QT or a racetrack. I'd reorganize my car because when you're living in your car, you got to keep it clean because there's absolutely no space. Your whole life is in your car. Dude, there was one point that there were three of us, four of us living out of one car. Right. And that's so wild when you think about right. it. Like, and then you do that and then you go on the hustle and you're doing all these things. And it's, it's just, like, I remember... 
like right before I got clean, I remember being, it was our last week that we could afford it at an extended stay. And we were in Alpharetta and uh, everybody was gone. They were copping up, whatever. And I'm like by myself in this room. I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I just have like this like epiphany, like this total mental breakdown. And I was like, never really been a really like religious kind of person. And I just remember like crying out like, God, give me just something to give a fuck about until I can give a fuck about myself. Okay. And I found out I was pregnant seven days later, you know. And it's just like, mm-hmm. well, 11 days later, actually. But it's just ironic how all that happens. Like, you know, it's not necessarily going to be exactly what you think it's going to be. But I think if you want to badly enough and you get to such a place of desperation where you don't know how to do anything other than... um be desperate Mm -hmm. like I was so dedicated to being desperate at that point Mm -hmm. like I was driving from meeting to meeting four or five six times a day because that was the only way that I could stay clean and then I was like sitting in my car by myself because I didn't even want to go around anybody that was getting high because I knew if I got close to them I was gonna get high so I'm like sleeping in my car in an extended stay parking lot because I couldn't even afford a room like trying to figure out how to do all this stuff and it's it's so wild the transition that happens when you're to that desperation point mm-hmm. and the bottom looks so different for every person. But right. I think that's, that's part of this like raw, real thing that we're talking about is like, not every day is going to be beautiful. Not every day is going right. to be easy. Like there's going to be times like I'm going through all this stuff right now with my family and trying to figure out how to navigate all this stuff. And it's like, it, I woke up and thought I was high cause I had a using joy mm-hmm. and I, I was convinced a hundred percent sure I was accidentally high. I did that the other night yeah. and I'm like freaking no out. Way. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And I, and I'm like, there's no, and I'm like thinking to myself, like, I don't feel high where you could literally like, like I've had them to where I, I wake up and I can taste it. Yeah. Dude, I was like, Oh my God, for the past, I'm not really fucking clean, dude. For the past seven years, I've been using on and off. Like, what the fuck have I been doing? Yes. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, yeah. I haven't, I'm good. Like, and then you check back in and you're like, God, Why can I not real. remember, like, any other dream? But, Except like, if I have clear. a healing dream. Oh my God, it's bro, so clear. Bro, like, I am messed up for, like, two weeks. Yeah. Up, yeah, everything. Yeah. Because it's, like, so crystal clear. The whole dream, the specifics. It's so vivid. Yeah. And, like, the faces, I can, right. I can see the, fa- like, mm-hmm. in, in any other dream, if I do manage to remember any of it, it's, it's like, like fuzzy. Yeah, yeah, it's like these like not real faceless people. Mm-hmm. Like, and what's even crazier for me now is like being in recovery. My using dreams always involve people within long term recovery with me. Did you know? I read a, a fun fact the other day that <laughs> if you every single face that you dream, you it's someone that you've seen in real life, even if just like in passing. passing. That's wild. Like Your if you see somebody just, at the like, mall, like you're. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. fact of the day. Yeah, well, we should we should do <laughs> we that. Should we should end with a fun fact of the day. day. <laughs> I'm with All right, that. I love trivia. Casey, Wanda, that will be your piece. <laughs> Wanda, thank you, Wanda. <laughs> and I'm out. Um, oh. Okay, yeah. guys. Well, I think that was a good first. Yeah, good so, first podcast, man. We'll talk to y'all soon if we don't change our minds and. No, <laughs> y'all keep us accountable. Uh, we'll be back. Yeah. Until next time, tune into the chit chat. Just kidding. <laughs>